0: Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from, and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Keown and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Before we get into today's episode, we want to provide a trigger warning that this conversation talks a lot about eating disorders, body image issues, and mental health. If you find this triggering, we would recommend skipping this episode and joining us back next week. If you are looking for support, head to butterfly.org.au in Australia and ed.org.nz in New Zealand. We will link these in the show notes below. Welcome back to the Fermi Pod. This is episode number 49. How crazy that we're nearly at episode number 50. We firstly want to thank each and every single one of you for tuning into this episode and any other episode. We are so grateful for the fact you've chosen this time to set aside to listen to us uh, when you could be listening to anyone or anything right now. As always, I have my beautiful co-founder and bestie Esty with me. How are you, Est?
1: I'm good, lads. Thanks. Yeah, just got back from our fun trip together in Sydney, which was a bit of a whirlwind very quick trip but I loved it and it was a really cool opportunity so yeah feeling good had a had a two-hour nap when I arrived home which is not really a nap I feel like it's a full sleep but yeah I'm feeling good I did the city to surf on Sunday which was really cool I was talking to lids about this and it was just really funny because I always give advice to my athletes I'm like make sure you pace yourself like it's really important over a 10k or an 11k you know you're it's a long way, and then here I go on Sunday and just absolutely let rip in the first 4Ks, <laughs> and I I think I was just so excited to be racing and, like, just that environment again. So, yeah, went pretty, went pretty ham in the first 4Ks and then realized I still had 7Ks to go and was already struggling. So that was really good learnings. <laughs> Doing a half marathon in a couple of weeks, so hopefully by then I've calmed down. Uh, a little bit and got my mind right before I start (laughs) that race and don't overdo it Um, and carry carry which will be really awesome but yeah feeling good
0: thanks let's how are you Yeah, I'm good. Um, Congratulations on the race again. It's so good to see you out there running. I had so much fun with you in Sydney. We yeah, whirlwind of a trip. It was so cool to head over there. And um, we went for a fun run with some really cool people. So it was awesome to just meet new people and new faces. And yeah, be able to see you, of course. But I am good. Uh, I am also racing in a couple of weeks. So I'm pretty excited for that. And just preparing to head over to New Zealand. uh, Est and I are going over to Auckland to Uh, go to the IWG Women in Sport Conference next week. So we're so excited for that. Uh, We're really excited to go to all the sessions and learn and um, meet incredible other people who are working in this space and trying to increase, you know, visibility for women in sport and education around female physiology in sport as well. So very excited for that one. In today's episode, we are going to deep dive into eating disorders, we wanted to share a little bit more about our own experiences, what we've been through, and then we're joined by our incredible Femi dietitian, Sarah Whitteson, who is going to provide us some expert advice on how we can support ourselves, as well as support others who may be suffering from an eating disorder or body image issues. I know we had done an episode on our body image journeys before, but this episode, we wanted to chat a bit more about specifically the disordered eating habits that both Esther and I have suffered and gone through and the experiences we've taken from challenging times. So Est, let's take it right back to the start. When was your first memory around like disordered eating or, or eating disorder behaviors?
1: Yeah, I think I've touched on it before and it's definitely to do with like the environment I was in and yeah, the thoughts behind a runner's body in my own mind and where that was being formed from and how it was forming. So I think a lot of the things that my coach said to me about leaner is better and skinnier, you'll be faster. And then looking at the other girls on the start line and comparing myself to them. I also remember, and I think I've talked about this before, seeing that photo of me crossing the line. And just sparking this instant thought in my mind that I was too fat to be a runner, even though I won the race. So regardless of performance, I still didn't fit the mold in my mind of like a runner. And so I think it started gradually. Like, I remember I was just like, I need to be a little bit smaller. And so those sort of thoughts came into my mind. And that's what began my journey with really restricting my diet so I think yeah just those thoughts and me then beginning this journey and I think it's kind of like a snowball effect like you do one thing and you lose a little bit of weight and then you get excited by it because that's what your goal is and so yeah when I was seeing my body get smaller I got excited by it and then I fell into it more and got more and more into it And I think I've touched on it before, like how little I was eating at the worst part of my, I would say, anorexic journey. I was, yeah, I would have sultana bread in the morning and then I wouldn't eat for six hours. And then I'd have half a can of baked beans and one piece of toast. And then I wouldn't eat for six hours. And then I'd have the smallest dinner in the world. So I genuinely believe that would have been a fifth. Of what i should have been eating as a growing woman and i should not be having six no one should be having six hours between food unless you're sleeping so yeah i think that was how it began it was definitely the thoughts in my head about my body shape and my body size and then my reaction to that photo led me into my disordered eating at the start but it's hard because when you start to see you know i like i said before i improved at running for about a year during this time and I think I also became a little I had a bit of body dysmorphia I think because I still remember thinking that I wasn't that skinny and then I look back now and I see the photos of myself and I'm like holy shit I look like a skeleton running around and I think I went from in I was in the mid 50s kgs because I'm, I'm relatively tall and you know I was going through puberty at this time, you know, 14, 13, 14. And then I went down to 40, I think it was 46 kgs at the same height. So I lost, you know, nearly 10 10 kgs and was running, you know, way too much as well. So that's where it all began for me in my mind. What about you, Liz?
0: Yeah, so crazy. I think I feel like our teenage years were, like, different but similar in a way. Like, I think my eating disorder behaviors, I was never – clinically diagnosed with an eating disorder, but I know for a fact that I struggled with food for the majority of my life or life that I can remember. I think I remember when I was probably eight or nine years old and I was doing ballet and I remember my ballet teacher calling someone out in the class and telling her in front of everyone that she was too big and that spiraled her into severe anorexia to the point she was in hospital. And I remember thinking like how tragic and sad that was at that age. But then, you know, from probably the ages of about 11 or 12, all the way through my teenage years, I really struggled with my body and the way it looked and and continually compared myself to other people in my class and my friends. I remember thinking like, if I could change anything in the world right now, it would be the size of my legs. And I hated the size of my legs. And I wish I had other people's legs. And it sounds so minute and pathetic. Now I think about it, but I'm like back then it was just like these intrusive thoughts about my body and the way I felt towards it and how much I didn't like it. I thought about that probably every, like I'm not kidding, maybe every two to three minutes, like something would cross my mind about the way I looked and I'm like, that's so much energy and time that was being consumed by my parents. And then as you can imagine, when you are thinking about something that much and you can almost control what the outcome of that thing is, like I did start to try to do that even through school. Like my mom was really good with food and she, you know, never told me not to eat specific foods. It was very like I had a really balanced diet as a teenager, but I, once I learned I could control a lot of that myself, I did try that. And I started trying to restrict my diet. I remember, you know, even being at school, I had an incredible group of girlfriends who we were really close and we'd sit and eat lunch with, but it was always like almost everyone was judging each other for how much and what they were eating. And I do remember there was a few of the girls in the group who just didn't care at all. Like they, it didn't cross their mind about what they ate. And I was like, I would have loved to have been like that, you know, like I remember them eating ice creams and I would have not touched an ice cream at school um, because I was so concerned about what that was going to do to my body. And yeah, I went probably from the ages of 12 to 13, I was going to the gym and which I've talked about a bit. I, I've gone to the gym like pretty much every morning to change the way I looked, but that also came with like controlling food. So it wasn't like I was training really well and eating really well. It was like, I was training a lot and I was, not eating the fuel that I needed to be eating for a growing body, much like you, Est, and I think this idea of, like, needing to be skinny or wanting to be skinny was so pushed on to me from society and media in particular, and I think about all those magazines that we used to read when we were growing up and the celebrities that we would look up to, and I just remember so well about this, like, genuine obsession I had with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson. and I was, like, such a fan of those girls and you know if you were in our generation in the 90s or the noughties where like they were like the biggest deal and they really had a huge influence on our generation of girls and unfortunately I think both of them but particularly Mary Kate really suffered a severe eating disorder and I remember seeing images of her when she was probably at her worst and thinking I wish I looked like that. I genuinely wanted to look like her. And there was another girl at my school who was a model, pretty successful model, severely underweight. And I remember genuinely thinking I wanted to look like her and I wish I had the control, um, self-control to be able to restrict my diet enough to look like that. And it's so sad because she was so clearly unwell and unhealthy. But I thought that that's what like, I should look like. And that's how society makes us feel, um, and media. And I think through all of that pressure that was being put upon us externally, we didn't even like I was so unaware of what was happening to my mind in the way that I was seeing the world. But um, it definitely forced me into these like I wouldn't say severe eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors that kind of came later in my 20s, but It definitely made me like really conscious about what I was doing and what I was putting in my body. Luckily, sport for me was like very much a vehicle to socialize. It wasn't like a way that I was trying to burn calories to get skinny. That was definitely through the way that I was eating. And probably around my mid-teens, 15, I remember falling into like bulimic habits. And it's probably something I haven't spoken about a lot, but definitely like, throwing food up. Um, I got to a point where I was doing it so often that I could do it even without using my fingers or my hands, which is maybe too visual, but it was pretty horrific the way that my like body started to react because I was just like continuously throwing food up. Um and that was really unhealthy. But again, I kind of just accepted that that was the norm. And that's what everyone did. And that's what I needed to do to kind of be skinny and, and fill these buckets or these needs of what society was like pushing on to me. So that was definitely like my earliest memories of like disordered eating I feel nowadays I hear some pretty tragic and sad stories about even younger girls like eight and nine-year-olds and even younger like falling into disordered eating habits which I'm so breaks my heart because you think about what environment they must be in to be you know having those thoughts going through their heads which is really sad it's
1: so sad it's so important the The effect that media has, like, I was obsessed with Mary-Kate, Ashley Olsen as well, and the Spice Girls. And then now we look back at those videos of the Spice Girls being weighed on national television after they had babies, and you think, no wonder, like, so many girls suffer with eating disorders. We're literally bombarded with a body type all the time when we were young of what's perfect. How could you not consider yourself imperfect if you didn't look like that? And... Yeah, like you say, the control thing is is crazy. And I think for me, the control thing came down to wanting to be a really good runner. And I was like, well, how can I do that? I can do that by, you know, being what my coach says is the best body type for a runner. So I'll just do that then. Mm-hmm. And then that literally led to me quitting sport and getting stress fractures. And, you know, my bone density was going down. I lost my period for, you know, one and a half, two years. So it's just so quick for it to become something really unhealthy. And it's really important. I think back to both of my sisters have also suffered disordered eating and, you know, the environments we were in with the running and then like you said, the media, and then also even, you know, parents like my uh yo-yo dieted, dieted a fair bit in her life. And I feel like that's probably affected the way I think of myself as well. And think of weight as well, but it's just crazy. It's, I I know that the prevalence of eating disorders isn't really getting that much better. So even though apparently skinny is not as cool as it used to be, there's still something out there that's affecting so many young girls' body image and the way they treat their bodies. And like, how can we change this whole mindset? Yeah, it's a tough one. But you kind of touched on it a little bit, Liz, but what were like some of the really extreme things you did when you were probably at your like, you know, at your worst, because I think this is a really important topic. And when Miriam came on our episode, her vulnerability really touched me. And I'm definitely keen to like, go into more detail about like what we, you know, what we were doing to our bodies.
0: Mm, Yeah, definitely. And for me, like the, I would say the, the worst time was between my, the ages of 20 to 25, where I was living my own life as an adult and I had the ability to control a lot of what the environment was around me and I had a lot of pressure put upon me especially by my coaches to kind of lose weight and be skinny and look a certain way or be lean so I could be fast which we all know is not true and I think those environments just led me down this pathway of like doing whatever I could possibly do to lose weight. And I did some pretty horrific and crazy things. Now I think about it. And I, I think it was a combination of both like these expectations from my coaches, as well as people that I was surrounding myself with, unfortunately, like you and I were kind of in this together where we were being surrounded by people who were clearly suffering disordered eating behaviors themselves and body image issues themselves, but because they were looking a certain way that almost was getting glorified or, you know, being told that they looked beautiful. And that was kind of like set upon us as like a goal to achieve was to get as either as skinny as them or look like them. And what can we do to do that? And it was almost like, wow, well, we'll just follow whatever they do because are clearly like lean and skinny and whatever they do must be working so if i just do that too and that's when the big you know high intensity fad came and it was like these girls are genetically blessed and they do a lot of high intensity work doesn't mean that high intensity is actually going to be good for you and give you the results that they have like that's not true at all but as a very impressionable young 20 year old i definitely went down that pathway and so For me, it was like overtraining to the maximum. I was doing high intensity training pretty much every single day, trying getting my heart rate up as high as I possibly could, thinking that that was the best way to burn calories when it was not benefiting my training at all or my running. I was restricting my diet to the point I was trying multiple different diets, if that's what you want to call them. I did keto, so I cut out carbohydrates for at least six months during this time where I was training really intensely as well. So I was pretty much living off salad and fats, which as a marathon runner is definitely not advisable. I would not tell anybody to do that. Um, That was a huge part of what led my body down the path of relative energy deficiency syndrome and losing my menstrual cycle. You know, There were times where I would just try and not eat. I would like go for a run and it might be a run even up to, I remember 35, 40 K runs, like long runs and marathon training and I would finish and I'd have a cup of coffee and I would try to put off and taking on any energy or any fuel for as long as I possibly could thinking that was going to be the best way for me to lose weight. And so I would go hours and hours of um, not eating and fasting, thinking that was great. And you can probably imagine the onslaught of what that did to me. And um, I remember like back in the day, this was probably in my early 20s, if not in my teens, where I was like writing things on my hands, just saying like, stop or don't eat, um, like little prompts to like prevent myself from eating and trying to put that like control in place. Yeah, I remember like one of the girls that I used to brace against was severely anorexic like severely anorexic but at the time was running well and she was telling us how she'd eat an apple a day so I definitely tried that a few times but that didn't last too long because I did get quite hungry Um, (laughs) there was one point in my life I lived off lollies like I just lived off lollies and subway and that was in my early 20s and I remember I lost five kilos in two weeks and that's not me saying that as a badge of honor like That is, was so bad for me and definitely put my body in a state of stress. And from there on, you know, my body was not wanting to, to play well with me at all. Like it really just wanted to hold on to everything I possibly could after the fact that I didn't give it any energy. So yeah, I mean, I did some pretty bad and sad things. Now I think about it just to like keep other people happy really and feel like I, I had to kind of live up to these expectations that were being put upon me. and I'm. So glad that now I've been through it and learned all of this, but I can just only imagine like what other young girls are going through because we didn't have social media the way that these young girls do now. And and that's a whole nother, I guess, opportunity for women to feel girls to feel insecure in their bodies, which is so sad. There's it's, one more thing I remember doing that yeah. I was like, now yeah. I'm like, what was I thinking? I remember like not drinking water, and I know I'm not the best water drinker. <laughs> But I remember back in my 20s, not taking on water after runs or even throughout the day, because I thought water would be like adding weight to me and that I would maybe look more puffy if I drank too much water. So I restricted my water intake.
1: <laughs>
0: who does that?
1: Oh, wow. Well, someone suffering does that. And yeah, it's just, we didn't understand, you know, we didn't know what we were actually doing to our bodies is like, you know, can cause long-term damage. And I think we're both really lucky that we've come out of it pretty healthy and we can still train and run really hard and work hard and, you know, have a really healthy body, but it's true. And you still see so many women who are, yeah, glorified to this day. And you look at them and you think, I hope that you're healthy because you question it because probably a fair few of them are not. And so it's like, It's still happening and it's so hard to actually like disassociate yourself from seeing that all the time and seeing them having, you know, heaps of Instagram followers or heaps of followers on TikTok and their body is like something that maybe yours isn't. And so you're always looking up to that still. And it's still hard. Like I think obviously now that we're, you know, in our 30s and or 30, we're wise enough to look at that and be like, it doesn't mean anything, you know, Like it's insane. Yeah just the lack of understanding of what we were actually doing to ourselves is quite scary. And I feel really grateful that we're both still. Okay. <laughs> I, um, I'll go into a little bit of like some of the stuff I did. I think, yeah, like obviously really badly restricting my eating when I was young and then went and put on weight to become healthier again. Cause my mum made me, which I'm grateful that she did that. And then, you know, running turned to shit and I ended up quitting sport and then I had never like drunk alcohol or anything until I was 18 and so I sort of like went down the opposite of what a runner does at that stage and I or someone who would consider themselves an athlete and I started smoking drinking partying all the time and my mental health was really really bad like I was not happy I had no idea what I was doing with my life because before that all I was was a runner and so when that had gone out the window, I was like, I got no direction here. I don't even know what I want to study. I thought I was gonna to go to the Olympics and that was that was my life journey. So yeah, like I think that's when um my like bulimia started. So I I it's pretty sick to be honest. Um, but I wonder if anyone else has a similar story. Me and my friend like would vomit together. So like we'd eat heaps of food together and then take turns throwing up and we did this all the time and we were like fueling each other's I guess mental health issues and we both weren't happy we were both partying heaps we were you know eating shitty food and doing this to our bodies together um and then I'm gonna cry <laughs> and then yeah I reckon I had I mean I told you Lids, the other day when we were talking about this podcast like, I probably only stopped doing this, like, two years ago, um, like, when we started PMI, but it wasn't severe. I think in the first, you know, three, four years, I was doing it heaps and, you know, keeping my body weight where I wanted it to be by doing that. And then, yeah, only, re- like, maybe two, two to three years ago, I stopped completely, but I was only doing it sometimes. And when I would, like, eat way too much food, I felt really sick. And that was you know me probably because I still was worried about the way I look. So when I would eat way too much food I felt felt really grossed out by myself. and so I would do that to my body and even like what Miriam said when we had that chat with her about her eating disorder history and she said she would have no money in her account, maybe like twenty dollars and she would go down and spend it all on food and I used to do that as well. I used to take everything I had and I would go and buy like, pots of nutella a couple of sandwiches bags of chips go into my room and like eat it all and then throw it all up and yeah it's pretty crazy like I don't really know why I was doing that to myself for a long time it's probably still leading back to like that control and feeling like lack of control in those situations so then you go and do something like that but when I was yeah binge eating and doing it that was maybe because for so long I'd been good at controlling myself and then this was a way to like let it go and like eat whatever I wanted but then not actually get bigger from it um yeah so still like to this day like right now I definitely am like in such a good place compared to those times in my life but it's crazy that it's only been you know probably since starting Femi that
0: I have really like stepped away from that stuff and that's why I feel really lucky to be part of Penny, but it is crazy. It is. And I think like we're all on this kind of like journey together because I don't think there's any day where I'm just like completely satisfied and happy with what I look like now, you know? And I feel like people would probably just assume that we now are like love our bodies and love what we look like and are always confident in ourselves. But that's 100% not the case. Like it's totally normal to not always love yourself and that's okay and I think it's you know being aware of those like intrusive thoughts and knowing that they exist and knowing that they're normal and then accepting them and letting them just go and I think for me it's like once I lost my menstrual cycle and it ended up really sick and unhealthy both physically and mentally I went on this journey you know to almost like learn about my body and figure out actually what's going on inside. Because until then I had absolutely no idea that during a menstrual cycle your hormones would change. And that's actually a good thing. Um and so yeah, I think even just touching on that, you know, being aware of your menstrual cycle and knowing there's times in my menstrual cycle where I definitely don't feel confident in my body. And I know that every month it's going to hit me. Um, but being aware of that has helped me so much. And just I think the way that we now can use sport to like keep us like holistically healthy has been really powerful. We don't use sport to just be the best athletes anymore. It's like we use sport because we love it. It makes us feel really good, but to be able to do sport in the way that we want to do it, we have to be fueling well and we have to be sleeping well and looking after ourselves. And so it's almost like gives us that purpose to always be looking out for ourselves and looking after ourselves. And I think um, that's been big, big part of my journey is just being like, well, if I want to run well and continue to run at all, I need to be eating. And then figuring out what foods works really well for that has been like fun, you know, and now like I do, I love food. <laughs> I always have loved food to be honest. Um, but I now know like what foods make me feel really good, how much food I need to be eating, which is a shitload when I'm in training. Um, and that's actually going to like allow me to perform better in myself and in my in my sport. So um yeah, I think it's important that we tell these stories because it's going to hopefully help you if you are suffering or you know someone's suffering, feel like you're not alone. Um, it can be really hard when people around you are suffering as well and you don't know what to do. So we definitely want to provide you some expert advice on like how you go about that. So hopefully you've kind of enjoyed listening to our stories and learning about our journeys and and now feel like you're not alone in this crazy journey if you are on one yourself. But we really wanted to introduce to you our Femi expert, Sarah Whitteson. She's our Femi dietitian. You may have heard about her or from her on previous podcast episodes. We are so, so lucky to have Sarah join us today to chat to us about eating disorders and disordered eating behaviors and body image issues and how we can go about it, whether you're suffering yourself or you have someone in your inner circle that may be suffering that you want to help so welcome to the show Sarah how are you hi I'm very good
2: how are you guys
0: yeah we are so good really excited to have you here speaking from a more expert opinion um, on eating disorders so we're going to jump straight into the questions the first one is can you explain specifically what an eating disorder is and then dive into the different forms of eating disorders
2: Um, So eating disorders have to be formally diagnosed um, and they are diagnosed using a standardized international criteria um, called the DSM-5 and there's lots of different subtypes of eating disorders. So the most common that people may know about is anorexia nervosa. There's bulimia, um, and then there's binge eating disorder, and um, there's also a classic, a classified group of eating disorders called um, EDNOS, which is eating disorders um, not otherwise specified, which is basically if people exhibit eating disorder behaviors that don't fit into those kind of big three, the anorexia, the bulimia, and the binge eating um, I think it's really important to say that lots of people live with eating disorder behaviors that probably could meet criteria to be diagnosed, but because it's a process to be diagnosed, like you have to go to a, a doctor working in that area or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, a lot of people don't actually have a diagnosis, but live with the behaviors, if that makes sense. Um, and then kind of under uh, eating disorders, if you think about food, relationship with food is a spectrum where there's like normal relationship on one side and eating disorder on the other. There's a huge number of people who sit in the disordered eating space, which is they don't have an eating disorder, but they don't have a normal relationship with food. And that diagnosis is a lot broader. It's basically having a relationship with food where you think about food or it kind of um, comes into your life and has control of your life more than your peers. And I think a lot of people would meet that diagnosis.
0: Yeah, that's definitely what I feel like resonates with my story and my experience and probably similar to you too. Hey, yes.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think there's been times where it could have gone either way. There's some disordered eating or whether it was, would have been diagnosed if I'd gone and seen someone, but it's just a crazy talking to a lot of the athletes we work with and just women who have reached out to us on Instagram and and how many women suffer from disordered eating or, Mm -hmm. you know, have been officially diagnosed with eating disorders. It's really, really sad to hear, but I think in Australia, two-thirds of people suffering eating disorders are, are women. Why do you think women suffer eating disorders more than
2: men? I think a lot of it, like what we know about eating disorders is there's a really big genetic component. So there's a um, a really famous study going on internationally at the moment where they're doing saliva samples of people with diagnosed eating disorders um, and doing DNA sequencing, which is really interesting. So there's a huge genetic component But also, obviously, not everybody that has a genetic predisposition goes on to have an eating disorder. So we also know there's an environmental component. And if you think about environment in the context of eating disorders, it's the the world that we're living in, in terms of diet culture, the messages we get about our body, and that cause body image distress for lots of people. So I would say that's why females are probably more likely to experience eating disorder than men. Yeah, because we're getting images about our body and messages about our body all of the time. Um, And there's a lot of research around body image and and body esteem. And and that begins or it forms, you know, in children as young as four and five. So, you know, it's really, really young. And some of the younger eating disorders um, are like nine, nine year olds, which is crazy. And if you think about... um, you know how accessible messages are about our body and diet culture now we have you know cell phones we have constant access um to that uh, invitation of comparison so comparing ourselves to other people um whether it's like culture used to be like magazines or you know tvs weren't even around <laughs> a lot back in the day so we know that um our eating disorder prevalence is increasing and it's probably because of that body image
0: dysmorphia environment that we're living in that diet culture that people are exposed to Mm, crazy this couldn't relate more to our own stories which is um scary and sad but it also kind of validates why we felt the way we did when we were younger and even now today you know what are some of the first signs that someone may be going down that path of disordered eating or having an eating disorder
2: Yeah. So like if we kind of personify this person and talk about a friend you might have, like what are some of the things you might look out for in that person or behaviors? And I think what's really important for people to know is it's not always weight loss. I think there's that really classical um, thinking that it's only kind of the small, frail looking person that might be suffering with their relationship with food. Um, And it creates more problems, you know, if people don't think they're sick enough until they're a certain weight, that um, limits their ability to access care or to seek help. So it's not always connected to weight. Some of the things you might notice are are people becoming more socially withdrawn. And so kind of not engaging in social settings as much as they used to, but potentially um, ones evolving food as well. So like declining dinner invitations or kind of always saying that, that they're not hungry and kind of not engaging with food and um, often with eating disorders there's kind of a sidekick of other mood disorders like anxiety or depression so you might see them becoming increasingly anxious about certain things or feeling really low as well um, often athletes who are experiencing eating disorders will dress inappropriately so they feel the cold a lot so you'll see them in kind of like track suits, puffer jacket, lining up um, before training with those everyone else might just be in like shorts and t-shirts so paying attention to those kind of things can be really interesting um, being like argumentative or closed off so like a really change in their demeanor is something that people might notice as well um, and obviously if you know a person really well things like a loss of a period might be something they talk about that's a really um, tried and true sign that something's not right with their nutrition and we could be worried about their relationship with food then that can be things like spending too much time in the bathroom. If there's like a purging or a bulimia kind of aspect to the eating disorder as well. So, yeah, mood kind of changes, you know, are they changing how they're dressing? Um, Are you noticing behaviors with food? If this is a friend of yours, like weighing, not finishing meals, pretending they're full, that type of thing um, are some kind of early signs. There's also a classical, I guess, picture or relationship with food, particularly with anorexia, where there is an infatuation for cooking for other people. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Um. So being the person who like wants to bake, wants to cook and really keen on seeing other people enjoy those foods, but never engaging with them themselves. That's another really classical sign. Mm.
1: So interesting. It's like, I've definitely noticed a correlation between some people studying to do with food or yes. uh, different things to do with food. And I wonder if it's like a control thing, but they're actually, you know, suffering
2: eating disorders. It's quite, it's quite common. Isn't it's that? really interesting you bring that up there's um a really good book called just eat it um i don't know if your, your listeners are readers but uh, just eat it was written by a dietitian in the uk called laura thomas and she um developed an eating disorder and the first chapter of her book is looking at the prevalence of eating disorders in people who study nutrition and there's kind of the the chicken or egg argument like a people with a difficult relationship with food drawn to studying food or studying nutrition kind of the environment that leads to the eating disorder being kind of brought to the surface if you like but it is really really common so fascinating (laughs)
1: fascinating we we can put that book in the show notes as well for anyone listening they can read it if they're interested Uh, obviously I know there's so many different types of eating disorders and you touched on them before but what can be some of the long-term
2: damage from that that is caused from eating disorders So, eating disorders, first and foremost, are a mental health disorder, which I think a lot of people um, don't know. And it's the anorexia is the most lethal mental health disorder. So it's the most likely to end in fatality, which is really, really sad. Um, So not to answer the question really morbidly, but literally that's what we're dealing with in some cases is end of life stuff. Um, Kind of uh, anything else aside from that is you see things like obviously a loss of cycle, which in athletes can lead to things like um, increased injuries, stress fractures, so issues with bone mineral density. In young females who develop eating disorders, they may have a delayed onset of their first period Um, And obviously when you have a period, you're making really important female sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone, but also females make testosterone throughout their cycle. And we know that testosterone is really important for bone health too. So if there's like a a 15, 16, 17 year old that's never had a period, her bone mineral density is going to be more compromised than a female who got her cycle at the age of 12 or 13, which is that common age period that they should be getting their period. Um, We also see issues like dental for um, purge type uh, eating disorders like bulimia, um, where they have like erosion on their teeth and their enamel um, and teeth rotting from frequent purging. Um, lots of issues with the gastrointestinal tract, so um, you know an inability to tolerate food long term. Um, and it's kind of across the the eating disorder spectrums. Um, lots of like long term nausea, stomach pain with eating, IBS, and it's kind of something I watch for in the athletes I work with. If they don't have a period and they're also talking to me about their irritable bowel syndrome, I start to ask questions: What's happening with nutrition for you? Because those are some red flags for me um obviously there's a huge social consequence as well so the physical body it affects lots and lots of different systems but there's also a really big emotional and social consequence so often um, the eating disorder gets in the way of friendships family members you know they might um develop like a poor relationship with their coach as well because there might be lots of deceit going on with the eating disorder so saying they're doing one thing and doing something else um so it has a really huge impact on people's lives not just their body but also their relationships and what's important to them
0: so crazy and so sad like the damage that we have done and you know people were doing without even knowing about it it's, it is scary and i think this is why this sort of education needs to happen more often like people just need to understand and um, not just for themselves but for people around them that are suffering as well like it well, sounds
2: really like innocent as well like I talked before about that spectrum where you've got a normal relationship with food and then eating disorder on the other end and then that disorder eating kind of space in between and um, and most people like no one begins most people don't begin a conflicting relationship with food thinking they're going to go on to develop an eating disorder So, you know, it begins in that disordered eating space where, like, I'll skip a meal or I'll cut out carbs or I'll, you know, just do this, I'll just do that. And then somewhere along the line, that individual loses control of those behaviors and they do go on to develop an eating disorder. So it's, yeah, that timely access to supporting a person is so important because if we we catch them in that disordered eating space, we can do something about it quite quickly. It is so much harder, but not impossible, to recover from an eating disorder.
0: Yeah. So like for someone who might be finding that they're suffering, I guess, falling into these intrusive thoughts about food and, you know, um, not feeling comfortable eating so much. What is your advice to those people? And like, what do you do for those people who come into the clinic? What kind of strategies do you put in place for them versus like the people around them?
2: Yeah. Um, so I guess like if someone was coming to me um to talk about their relationship with food, I work from um a non-diet space. So kind of teaching people to de-escalate their thoughts about food, kind of go through what do you believe about nutrition versus what do we know about science. And I love working with athletes because they're driven, they're smart and they love data. <laughs> So you can literally, you know, if the um, disordered brain is telling them that I need to eat less carbohydrates to be a certain weight, I can get really sciencey with them and say, well, what do we know about carbs? They turn into glucose. Why do you need glucose as a runner? You know, you need to run fast and far and you need glucose to do that. And they get it pretty quickly. So kind of teaching them to build up. I call it the healthy self. So like empowering the healthy self to have lots of scientific knowledge around food, understand what's normal and appropriate um you know for their training or whatever other goals they've got around nutrition to help combat that um disordered eating voice um, i also teach about a framework called raves so r-a-v-e-s which was an eating disorder framework developed by an amazing dietitian shane jeffries in australia um, so we talk about regularity, which is what the R stands for. Are people eating often enough? We talk about adequacy, which is what the A stands for, but also acceptance. So when I eat, do I eat enough? Um, but just, do I also accept a range of food groups in my diet as well? And um, the V is for variety. Um, so I see lots of people who are happy to eat enough and often enough that they eat the same bloody thing all the time. Like these are my two breakfasts that I will allow. This is my one lunch I will eat and here's my two dinners that I will allow. Um, and that's a type of restriction in itself so we look at variety with those clients too and the e stands for eating socially so a lot of people are kind of happy enough with their relationship with food when it's just them and food but when you introduce um you know having to order spontaneously from a menu you've never seen before having to eat in front of someone you've never met before or in front of a family member that maybe made unkind comments about your body 10 years ago. These are things if you've never lived with a difficult relationship with food, you probably take for granted um, as something that you're able to do with ease. But for a lot of people, that's really stressful. So we talk about coping with that. Um, And then the S in RAVE stands for spontaneity. So can you be spontaneous with food? So, you know, if Lillian and Esther were like, hey, Sarah, let's go for brownie after this podcast recording and um, to have the ability to say, shit, yeah, I love brownie and kind of go and enjoy that moment rather than, um, you know, thinking, holy crap, I didn't account for this today. How am I going to compensate for this tomorrow? I won't be able to eat dinner now because I had brownie with the girls in that recording. That's the kind of stuff I work on with clients. It's not like a 10 step program, but those are the themes that we talk about together. Um, yeah, regardless yeah. of where people sit.
0: I th- I just think about my experience when I was in my early 20s and not probably not the height of my disordered eating behaviors, but it was bad. And I remember seeing a nutritionist and her pretty much sitting me down and telling me how much I needed to eat. And to be honest, it just freaked me out. And in my mind, as a young 20 year old who, you know, feels like they know everything in the world and you think you know yourself so well. Well that was me. Um <laughs> I pretty much said to her, like walked away being like, There's no way I'm gonna eat that food, like it's gonna make me fat. And then mm-hmm. I just continued my disordered eating behaviors. Uh, yeah. whereas now I'm like if I'd listened to her, I probably would have performed way better as an athlete and actually been way more sustainable in my training and my performing as well. But like, what can you do for that girl who just doesn't want to listen or doesn't believe that like the purpose behind eating more and better food?
2: Yeah, it's really hard. Hey. So I talk about with my clients this idea of a comfort zone or like a safe zone. Um, and it sounds like, Lydia, for you, having like a meal plan or being kind of prescribed a certain amount of nutrition that was well above what you were currently eating had pushed you well out of your safe zone or your comfort zone. Um, so I would say with my clients, although your eating disorder isn't safe or comfortable, kind of working together on the edge of safety is where you tend to get lots of buy-in from clients. So, you know, if your nutritionist said to you, Lydia – You know, this is what I would expect a 20-year-old athlete of your caliber to be including, but I understand that would be really scary for you right now. Is there anything here that you feel like you could work on? So you might have said to her, like, I feel like I could have um, something prior to a race, but I'm only going to do it on race day to start with. You know, it's just inviting that little bit of buy-in rather than my expectations for you are to go from zero to 100 overnight. It's kind of getting that slow incremental change. Um, And normally what happens is... Obviously, we can't predict outcomes, but, you know, you would have that nutrition pre-race, you would smash your race and feel different on the other side, and then you would get that feedback. What I know to be true is I need to fuel my body for running. I did that and I saw a really great outcome. Then you kind of build trust and you're happy to to take another step or another task from that nutritionist. So that would be the thing is think about your comfort zone um, and what might be a challenge that's on the edge of that comfort zone that you're happy you know, to look at rather than going from what you're doing at the moment restriction wise or whatever that disorder of eating is manifesting as and completely terrifying yourself i often use analogies with my clients like i'm like so ridiculously scared of bugs it's stupid so i always use bugs (laughs) as a analogy Um, And food is really scary if you're suffering from disordered eating or an eating disorder. It's, you know, we're kind of galing about it now, but it is really, really scary. And so if I was working on my fear of bugs, you know, would I go and lie in a box of spiders tomorrow? No. (laughs) But could I look at the spider from through like a glass panel? Maybe. Could I kind of put a finger out and let it run over the cross of my finger? Maybe. I'm kind of sidetracking. But do you know what I mean? It's like de-escalating the fear around what you're trying to achieve. That's yeah, so true. I had a similar experience. So, and when I was younger,
1: my mum made me go to a nutritionist when I was at the height of my disordered eating as well. And exactly the same thing. She was like, eat two big sandwiches at lunch, eat this, this, that, that, like so much food. And I did the same thing That's I freaked out and I did like some, of, but I did actually do some of what she said, but maybe if she'd approached it the way you did, Sarah, I would have had more buy-in, like a little bit more. Um. Yeah, getting them to adopt it more so rather yeah. than just throwing right in the deep end like into a big box of spiders, <laughs> which is
2: absolutely horrible. <laughs> right? So terrifying. The other thing I say about meal plans with clients um, is sometimes they are the safest thing, um, particularly like for a really young person. So if you're under the age of 18, you know, your parents still have the responsibility of feeding you. Um, And a meal plan can be really useful when you're trying to support a family to to feed the young person. But I always talk about it kind of like a cast on a broken arm. You know, if you've got a broken bone, we want a cast around that bone to support it until it's strong enough to continue healing without that cast. And for some people, a meal plan is just that when they have an eating disorder. It is not a forever thing. It's to nourish your brain enough so we can have the really important conversations we need to have about your relationship with food and your body. And having a conversation with a starved person in fight or flight mode is really, really hard. So we're going to do the cast on the broken arm for a really short period of time, then we're going to take it away. So for some people it's really useful. For other people, it's just really terrifying and it just worsens everything. Um, so it needs to be individual.
1: Yeah. It's it's funny, like even if I think about approaching like you've got so many different strategies to work with, you know, someone on a different on a spectrum from one end to the other of how much they're suffering and and how much they're willing to listen but what about people who are in you know a support network so I think about myself and I think about some athletes that I know and I know that they're suffering disordered eating or potentially an eating disorder and I have sort of tried to reach out and not specifically talk about that but get in touch more and figure out a way to like help them and I feel really blessed to have you Sarah because I know that I've given you so many <laughs> people that I know to really help and you have literally changed their lives and you're helping so many people so many of the athletes at Femi and then some friends that, that we all have as well so thank you very much for that but what does someone do in a situation where potentially they don't have a Sarah to talk to or, or to send their athletes to, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, yeah, what should someone do if they notice that someone's starting to potentially act a bit differently around food, or you can tell that they're suffering, what, what some steps they can take to get that person help?
2: Yeah. I think one of the, um one of the, the common concerns people have when they've got someone they love they're worried about their relationship with food is they're worried about making it worse I don't know if you've ever felt that way if I ask them if I say something I'm going to make it worse um, and you can't make it worse as, as the first kind of tip I would say is you being brave enough to have that conversation from a place of compassion in a non-threatening way you cannot make it worse so asking you know hey I've noticed or um, would it be okay if we had a chat about what's going on for you around food? I've noticed these things, um, so inviting the conversation would be the first tip. Um, if you don't feel particularly like close with that person, you might kind of shoulder tap someone else who's really trusted. So um, you know, maybe if it's a coach that's concerned, maybe there's like a favorite training partner that that coach could kind of shoulder tap and say, you know, could you have a chat with Esther about her what's going on with her around food? Um, people might feel comfortable going to their GP or their doctor and saying, I'm, I'm worried about what's happening at the moment with my own behaviours. Um, yeah, that would be also a really useful thing to do. There's a couple of really good websites um so there is uh i think the abbrevi- abbreviations now but it's like uh, basically australia new zealand eating disorder and um, if you google that it's the first one that pops up forgive me i can't remember the abbreviation um but it has a really good resource tab so what if it's someone that you love that's suffering uh, from an eating disorder and um, with some kind of different conversation starters and resources that people would find really helpful as well so Be brave enough to have the conversation would be the first thing. If it's from a place of compassion and kindness, it'll always be um, a good thing to do. You cannot make it worse. Um, You know, have uh, potentially if you're not the closest person to this person, but you're noticing the behaviors, you could shoulder tap someone that might be a little bit closer to them or a little bit more trusted. Um, Go to your GP or encourage them to go to their GP to start the conversation and um, access resources
0: online that might make the conversation easier. Mm. Thank you. We will definitely um, attach all of those resources in the show notes for anybody who wants to check them out. So, thank you, Sarah. That was awesome. The last point I just wanted to chat about was the idea that an eating disorder is correlated to the way someone looks. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, when I was at the height of my eating disorder, I was probably at almost the heaviest that I've ever been. And that's not to say that I was overweight, I was just bigger than I am at the moment. And I think it was much because I wasn't fueling myself correctly but from the Mm -hmm. outset no one would have assumed that I had a disorder in the way that I was eating and I think it's really important to talk about because people especially in our sport just assume only those who have anorexia um, and are clearly like visibly underweight are Mm -hmm. suffering but do you want to just explain maybe a little bit around like you know the different types of disordered eating and why it can happen that you might not look underweight or look as in quotation marks as though you're suffering from an eating disorder um, and how we can be more aware of those people who are suffering like potentially different eating disorders
2: yeah and it's such a common experience hey is that people think um that it's only a certain like image that like you were saying Lydia, that that have an eating disorder so um I guess historically an anorexia diagnosis was someone um, with a BMI below 18.5 which is considered underweight um, and the, there's a term that's still used, which I really don't like, which is atypical anorexia, which is um, trying to say someone who has anorexia but doesn't have a BMI less than 18.5. And the reason I don't like that term is it can make the person with atypical anorexia feel like, well, I'm, I can't be that sick if I'm not, you know, properly anorexic or whatever it is that they, they're they aiming to be. Um now we define anorexia as um, the the energy deficiency basically so not having the energy intake um, compared to requirements and you'll find that a lot of people will meet that diagnostic criteria even if they have um, you know a BMI that's not 18.5 a BMI of 20 for example which might look completely normal. Um, there's a lot of other eating disorders, like, uh, um, like binge eating disorder is the most common eating disorder. Um, it's often very secret and it has no correlation with the way somebody looks. Um, so it's basically feeling out of control with food um, and having binge episodes or experiences, which is when they eat a socially unacceptable amount of food in a really short window of time um, and they don't use compensation behaviours like purging or making themselves unwell on purpose Um, and it's important to kind of know it's socially unacceptable portions so a lot of people will say the word binge I don't know if you've heard people say that like just really casually like and then I had a binge Um, and I'm going to ask them further what they mean by that it might be you know well then I had like a chocolate bar that's not a binge a binge is a socially unacceptable portion like four cakes of chocolate that will be socially unacceptable hey um so that's kind of an eating disorder that a lot of people suffer from um and normally there's a restriction element so they're trying to be good during the day and then it all kind of comes undone or they feel out of control with food and in response to emotions or stress or fatigue at the end of the day um and then obviously with bulimia there is um, kind of a restriction binge purge relationship so a restriction trying to not eat binging feeling out of control with food and then compensating as well Um, and a lot of people with bulimia like you couldn't look at them and say that person has bulimia um so they are silent in appearance for a, a lot of people um and it is really important that we don't use weight or kind of our perception of somebody's body weight to diagnose them i don't know if that answered the question very well lydia but there's um kind of so much to say about each individual eating disorder subtype it would be hard to sit here and say this is how you would know somebody has this eating disorder. Um, But I think it's really important that we don't get hung up on on weight and what someone looks like.
1: Yeah. You know, with that bulimia aspect, we talked about it before uh, in our stories here, and both of us have suffered bulimia in our lives. I, you know, you talked about before disappearing after meals, and I feel like I would do that. And if (laughs) someone had the awareness that that is a sign potentially they could have had that conversation with me so i just appreciate what you said before and i think you know if we know about it and we're aware we can start to notice the actions of people and it's not so much to do with their size or their weight it's mm. you know what are they actually, how are they behaving um yeah so just appreciate that and i think a lot of people will take a lot of education out of this and feel more confident in speaking to people about these sort of things but also noticing the signs as well
2: Yeah, I think you two are probably um, like don't underestimate your uh, how your experience qualifies you to give advice around, you know, how to approach conversations and things like think back to the person that you were and what you were suffering suffering with when you were at the height of your um, difficult relationship with foods and you know if someone had kind of grabbed you on the way of the bathroom mister how would you like to have been spoken to um, how could that you know conversation had have had follow-through around accessing medical support or psychology support and things so you guys will have lots of good tips I'm sure
0: <laughs> yeah thank you so much is there anything or any other pieces of advice that you would give to someone who's potentially suffering or you know maybe going down the path of suffering and eating disorder I think the
2: most important thing I would want them to hear is that recovery is not linear and you might give recovery a go and it might feel too hard at the point of your life that you're in at the moment, but you can come back to it. And it's really important if you don't feel hopeful, know that other people in your life definitely are holding the hope for you. I always tell my clients, I'm holding the hope torch that you're going to get better and you can have a go of holding it when you're ready to. Um, But for people kind of at the height of their um, unwell relationship with food, it can feel like it's never going to end. But it can, for sure. So I just want people to know that.
0: Thank you so much for all your advice. It was really good, and we can't wait to share this with the world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to everybody who listened to this episode of the Femi Pod. We will be back in your ears next week. But in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, head to our Instagram at femi.co, or you can go to our website and get in touch with us there, femi.co. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Enjoy your week and we will chat to you all next week.